0: Bibles to Revelation chapter 11. This morning we're going to to consider verses 1 through 14. Read with me if you will following in your heart and mind as I read to you this passage and the scripture reads like this saying, and there was given me a reed like unto a rod and the angel stood saying, rise and measure the temple of God. And the altar, and them that worship therein. But the court which is without the temple leave out, and measure it not. For it is given unto the Gentiles, and the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty and two months. And I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy. A thousand two hundred and threescore days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. And if any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth and devoureth their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed." These have power to shut heaven, that it rain not in the days of their prophecy, and have power over waters to turn them to blood, and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. And when they shall have finished their testimony, the beast that ascendeth up out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them, and shall overcome them, and kill them. And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city which, is, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt where also our Lord was crucified. And they of the people and kindreds and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies three days and a half and shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put in graves. And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them and make merry. And shall send gifts one to another, because these two prophets tormented them that dwell on the earth. And after three days and a half, the spirit of life from God entered into them, and they stood upon their feet, and great fear fell upon them which saw them. And they heard a great voice from heaven saying unto them, Come up hither, And they ascended up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies beheld them. And the same hour was there a great earthquake, and the tenth part of the city fell, and in the earthquake were slain of men seven thousand. And the remnant were affrighted and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past, and behold, the third woe cometh quickly. Now then, you'll recall that last Sunday, if you were here, and I wish I had the time to give you a long review, but I don't, And I hope that if you are just kind of breaking into the middle of this, if there are questions uh, that I can help you with, I'll be delighted to try to do so after the service. And also, uh, if you would like uh, copies of all of our messages on Revelation, we have those available on tape for you at a cost of $2 per tape. So you can check with them in in the the, uh, uh, church office after the service if you'd like. Now last Lord's Day, we began uh, looking behind the scenes up until, or rather up to chapter 10 of this book of Revelation, we have been looking at expressed uh, uh, manifestations of the judgment of God. They are told us and revealed to us in what John calls uh, uh, the sounding of trumpets and the breaking of seals. We have looked at all of those seals that were broken, and as a result of the breaking of those seals, we found that certain things occurred. Likewise, at the sounding of the trumpets thus far, we have looked at the sounding of six of those trumpets of judgment, and after those trumpets sounded, then there came severe trial and judgment upon this earth. And now we come to chapter 10 and in this chapter there is the beginning of a second parenthesis in this book of Revelation. Now this is the second, the first parenthetical chapter was found in chapter 7. And that followed the, 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 the breaking of the sixth the seal. Between the sixth and the seventh seal, there is that parenthetical chapter. And we have said that those parenthetical chapters, our passages, are given to us to give us more detail of what is taking place. In other words, there is a further explanation. Now then we come to the second parenthetical section and that goes from chapter 10 all the way down through chapter 11 and verse number 14. Those are parenthetical verses in this chapter 11. Now then there are three notable testimonies that you'll find recorded in this 11th chapter. Uh, 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 the three notable testimonies and uh, it's testimony time we might say as you look at chapter 11. Those testimonies are given first verse 1 through 11 of chapter 10. Pardon me I said these three were in chapter 11 but I meant to say in this parenthetical section begin at chapter 10. In chapter 10, verse 1 through 11, you'll find the first of those testimonies. It is the testimony of the mighty angel, and we dealt with that last in our last message. Down in chapter 6, you'll remember that the testimony of that angel was that there should be time no longer. And I tried to show you from the word, from which we had our word time, chronos, uh, the word simply is a reference to a, a delay. A delay. And so uh, the verse, uh, the statement is simply this the angel is declaring that time, that is, will be delayed no longer. Uh, God has lingered long in His mercy and in His and in His grace, but now it is time for judgment to move in, and you'll see that in a more severe manner as we continue on in these next chapters of the Revelation. So, the testimony of the mighty angel, chapter ten, verse one eleven, and then chapter eleven, we have it, verse one through fourteen, which we have read this morning. The testimony of the two witnesses. The testimony of the two witnesses. As I read these verses, my inquisitive mind said, I wonder why the Lord chose two witnesses. Why not just one? Why was there the necessity of two witnesses? And yet I think in the context of this passage you'll find that it is another moment of the judgment of God. God is ready and about to execute the very sentence of judgment on this world and upon godless, Christ-rejecting men and women. And it is a very severe sentence and judgment. In fact, it is a capital judgment. It is a sentence of capital punishment. And you'll find back in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 17 and verse number 6. Under the law of Moses, when a capital crime had been committed that required capital punishment, it could only be done so as the result of not one witness but of two. And so under the law, there had to be two witnesses to the crime that the man had been accused of ere the sentence of capital punishment was meted out upon that particular person. We find in the, in the Word of God that God's sentence upon a godless, Christ-rejecting, sinful world is a capital judgment. The wages of sin is what? Death. Death. That is a capital sentence, and that is the severest kind of sentence pronounced. The Bible says as well, not only upon individual men, but upon the nations of the world. The word declares in Psalm 9 and verse 17, the wicked shall be turned into hell, and all the nations that forget God. So you must realize now that these two witnesses come in their number by reason of the severity of the judgment that is about to be pronounced and brought upon mankind and upon this world. And then at chapter 11, verse 15 through 19, there's the third notable testimony, and that is the testimony of the elders in heaven. And uh, we'll not deal with that today. We'll get that at at, at a following time. And so you have three notable testimonies. But now let me just say a word about God's testimony today. Today in this age of grace that we call the church age, God's witness today is the church. He has commissioned us to be witnesses for him while we are in this present age of God's dispensation of grace. So it is the testimony of the church today. In Acts chapter 14 and verse 17, we're reassured that the Lord does not leave himself without a witness. And even you'll find not only today does the Lord have his witness, but even in the time of the tribulation period on this earth that is coming, God has his witnesses even in this dreaded period of time. The Bible even reveals that in this period of time, there are at least 144,000 Jewish believers who will be witnesses and give testimony to the fact of the truth and the reality of our blessed Lord. And so today, the witness and the testimony of the church. Let me add one other thought. A testimony has two sides. A testimony has two sides. A testimony can be given for or against an individual. A man goes into court and he testifies for a certain party that has been accused of a crime. Or he may come in as a witness to testify against that man who would claim to be innocent. And so you find here in these two witnesses, you've got both sides of the purpose and the ministry of a witness. They are witnessing for God, but they're witnessing against the world who has slighted God, who has ignored God, who has rejected his Christ, who live in their sin and in their unrepentant state. Now then, as I looked at this again, another question came. And the question was this. Since God knows what man will do anyway, Why does he delay his consuming judgment? If God knew and God does know what men will do even in this time of tribulation period upon the earth and knowing that they will not repent of their evil deeds, they will cling to their sin, they will love their sin, they will not turn, yet why does God delay I would remind you that the Bible tells us that God is a holy and a just and a true God. In other words, the Lord delays His judgment, though He knows the outcome of the response of men to His witnesses, Yet he must have in his holiness unmistakable evidence to bear that men have flaunted the word of God, thumbed their nose at God, ignored God, and God in his holiness, though he knows what men will do, yet in his mercy delays the consuming judgment. By the same token, I would ask this question. Why does God delay the judgment upon an individual today whom God knows is rejecting his son and who will reject his son, who will defy God, who will mock God, who will leave God out of his life. Why does God delay even that judgment upon a man, a person like maybe someone here who does not know Christ and a trample of the blood of his son under your very feet? God is a holy God. He is a merciful God and he is unwilling that any man perish. But I tell you, as the witness of God's truth comes to your heart and yet men reject it, that same witness will not only be for God, but it will be against men and women who have chosen to leave Christ out of their life. In other words, what we have before us here is the world on trial. The world on trial. And God's witnesses now are seen coming before us. Now, notice, if you will, the testimony of these two witnesses. There are three things that I want to point out to you. And if you'll notice these. First of all, notice the ministry of these two witnesses. The ministry of these two witnesses. The second thing I want you to note is the martyrdom. The martyrdom of the two witnesses. And thirdly, you'll notice the miracle of the two witnesses. Keep those, uh, uh, you, you hear about the 3M company, well keep these 3Ms in mind. The ministry, the martyrdom, and the miracle of these two witnesses. Now let's look at verse 1 through 6. Keep your Bible open and let me point out a few things to you here. As we look at the ministry of these witnesses. Verse 1 and 2 introduces to us the fact of the temple. The temple. Notice verse 1 and 2 says to us in the words that we have already read, And there was given to me a reed like a rod. And the angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. But the court which is without the temple, leave out and measure it not, for it is given unto the Gentiles. Now, watch what is said about the temple. First of all, notice the measure. There was given to me a reed like unto a rod. That is, they were to rise and measure the temple of God. Now, literally, the word here is staff. A staff, this particular reed, was about some 10 feet long. And so he was given this particular rod to measure the temple and the altar and the people that are therein. Now God has a standard of measurement. Man has his, but God has his standard of measurement. The word measure here comes from the word from the word metrosan metrosan and the verb form form of that word is metreo the word is used to determine space or number or value so what the lord is doing here is for his servants to consider now the value of the temple As far as God is concerned about this temple in the tribulation period, you will discover that it has no value, no divine value to God whatsoever. The temple has no value because the temple is without God. You remember Jesus said of the temple in his day, your house is left unto you desolate empty. It is a structure. It is beautiful in appearance, but it is empty. God has nothing to do with the temple he is saying. And simply I think you'll find this, that that temple that will, by the way, be built during the tribulation period on the very site where right now the Dome of the Rock stands or the Mosque of Omar, as sometimes it is called, an Arab shrine. The very place where Herod's temple stood and Solomon's temple and Zerubbabel's temple, there will be another temple built in the city of Jerusalem. And you'll find that there is much longing and preparation and plan for that very temple to be erected on the part of the Jews of Israel and around the world in this very present day. Already their plans, their hopes, their dreams, this is what they desire. And so, just as the word of God opens up, it's soon to happen. Well, I'll say a little bit more about that in just a moment. But here you'll find that as the the messenger measures the temple, considers its value, that indeed he finds it a place of no value. It is rather a place of human pride rather than a place of the holy presence of God. The temple indeed will be built. But Ichabod will be written over it. The meaning of the word Ichabod in the Hebrew, you remember, simply meaning the glory has departed. In other words, here is the temple erected and now on the site in the city of Jerusalem. And that temple will be built. One of the ambitions of all of Israel today, especially the Orthodox, is that that temple will be erected. And I want to tell you, it will be erected in the period of these seven years just following the rapture of the church. In Daniel chapter 9, you'll find that Daniel says that ruler of the world, the Antichrist, the beast, the son of perdition as he is called, that man who will rise out of the the old Roman empire that is revived, and I'll tell you this if you're not aware of it, the very boundaries of the old Roman Empire include all of those European nations that are today calling for a United States of Europe. And out of that very, out of that very area will rise a man who will make a covenant with Israel and he will promise them safety and security from the, from the threats and the hostility of the Arab world. And he will give them right to build their temple and to restore their old system of ritual sacrifices in the temple. We say there's a problem there, isn't there? Yes, there is a mosque of the Arab world, of Islam, of the Muslim world. The second most holy shrine of Islam stands today on what is known as the Dome of the Rock, on the very site of Mount Moriah. The place where the temple is to be erected. A man said to a leading Israeli archaeologist, I know that your hopes are to have a a temple built on this site. But now there's great opposition from the Arab world. This is a sacred shrine. And he said, how do you ever suppose that could come about? And with a wink he said, perhaps by an earthquake. Who knows? And perhaps it could be by an earthquake. I do not know. I'm only saying that the Antichrist is going to make a covenant with Israel, let them rebuild their temple, but in the midst of that seven-year covenant, he will break his covenant and set himself up in that very temple and demand that the peoples of the world worship him as God. You'll find it in the Word of God. Again then, the temple is uh, is seen to be measured. Now, watch what he measures, the measured here. He measures the temple, the altar, but watch this. Don't miss this, the people. In other words, he wasn't putting a ruler up by a felon saying you're six feet tall and 35 feet around. He wasn't saying that at all. He's just simply saying, I'm checking for value. And that's what the term measure here is, the value of this temple site, the value of the altar, and that altar will be profaned by the Antichrist. Even as Antichrist's epiphany is the magnificent, offered in the earlier days, a sow, a pig on that most holy altar, the Antichrist will set himself up as God, and this is that that Daniel spoke of as the abomination of desolation. When you see this, he said, come, you better flee for the mountains. Don't go back for your hat, your bonnet or anything. You better get out of town. So the whole story is he me- the measures made, those who are measured is revealed. But look at the moment of this. Notice it is now in the period of the time of tribulation. The things that follow this particular moment are undoubtedly ushering in the last half of the seven years of the dreaded tribulation period. So it is that moment of the tribulation. Now notice, if you will, verse number two, at that which is missed, the mist, I simply call it. M-I-S-S-E-D. Now watch this, verse number two. The second verse says, but the court which is without the temple leave out. Don't measure it. For it is given unto the Gentiles, and the holy cities shall they tread under the uh, underfoot forty and two months. So the court of the Gentiles in the tribulation temple is excluded. It is not to be reckoned with. Why? The simple answer is because the Gentiles are going to tread underfoot Jerusalem until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. What the verse is revealing, I think, is this God is dealing here exclusively with the Jew. The temple has to do with the Jew. It is in Jerusalem that the temple is built. And so he is dealing here exclusively with the Jews. But now notice, he said, the Gentiles will trod down Jerusalem for the period of 42 months. That comes out to the old biblical calendar of 360 days instead of an hour that has 365. It comes out to the period of three and one half years. Amazing. And yet that's it. Not only that, but he comes to the period of, uh, in days, 1,260 days. And he's simply reminding us that that is the period of time remaining for the rule of Gentile world power. Now, the Gentile rule in this world started back in 606 B.C. You remember, under the Babylonian captivity, God gave to Daniel a vision of a, of a giant beast, the image of a man. The man's head was of gold. His breast was of, of silver. His uh, loins were of brass, if I am remember correctly. And the two legs were of iron, and the feet were made of a mixture of iron and clay. Now watch carefully what he reveals in that. I don't have time to deal with this. I'll try to do it more thoroughly another time. But what Daniel saw in his prophecy centuries ago was the very rulership of world empires, the Babylonian Empire, the Grecian Empire, and on down to the rule of the Roman Empire, even to the point of the division of the Roman Empire between the left and the right legs, the eastern and the western division of the Roman Empire. Until finally, in the latter days of that Roman Empire, which today is legally non-existent, but still present in land mass, in territory, all the others. And yet again, those two feet will be made of clay and iron. And there Daniel said he saw in his vision a stone stone that was cut out of the mountain and it came rolling down and crushed the feet of the beast. In other words, Daniel foresaw hundreds and centuries ago the exact course of world history. My friend, this Bible is not a comic book. And if you're not acquainted with it, you need to get acquainted with it to realize that no chance in a billion chances could a man have guessed the empires and named them that would rule this world even before they existed and before they came into power. Amazing is the word of God. And yet today we talk about educating people and they know little about the word of God itself. No wonder people don't know what's going on in this world. No wonder they don't know what's happening. No wonder they're asking, what, no, what, what's this world coming to? Why all this turmoil in the Middle East? If you're getting your Bible, you'll find out. I'm going to tell you, God's focusing the world's eyes and attention on the Middle East this very day. And things are transpiring so quickly in that part of our world. God is setting the stage, my friend, for end time events. And they're soon and quickly upon us. So here we find simply the fact that the Lord is saying the Gentiles period will be but a few short months. And then notice, if you will, the testimony of these two witnesses, not only the temple that they were asked to measure, but look at their testimony at verse 3 down through 6. Notice the prophets and what they're prophesying. These are God's prophets. usually rises, and that question is this. Who are these two witnesses? Now, isn't that what generally people consider when they look at that? You know, isn't it strange that we miss the point altogether, and we begin to focus on something that is apparently not of the greater consequence? Yes, the two witnesses are real personalities. They have come now sent from God. Now there are two, uh, as far as I'm concerned, two very uh, valid opinions. Most people believe that these two witnesses will be Moses and Elijah. There is much evidence that points in that direction. There are others who believe that the two witnesses will be Elijah and Enoch. Now the belief that Moses and Elijah are these two witnesses perhaps is based upon the performance of the thing, the, the, the performance of these prophets. They have power to shut off rain and for no rain to come, for drought to occur. It reminds you of Elijah and Elijah's greatest miracle in the Old Testament. He declared a drought for three and a half years, for three years rather, in Israel and it, ha- and it came to pass. Not only that, but they had power to turn water into blood. Reminds us of one of the great miracles that Moses performed down in Egypt before Pharaoh. Now then, there is a great possibility that it could be both Elijah and Moses. On the other hand, it could be Elijah and Enoch. I, I, I'm pro- I have no question about Elijah. Indeed, Zechariah said that the prophet Elijah would come before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Now, John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah, but he was not Elijah. And the Lord said, if you are able to hear it. If you're able to hear it, but they wouldn't hear it. And yet John the Baptist came in in the spirit of Elisha. But the prophecy of Zechariah says that Elijah will come before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And that phrase always refers to the judgment of God, the tribulation of God, the wrath of God upon this earth. So undoubtedly Elijah is coming uh, uh, as one of those witnesses. Now, Elijah, you remember this, never died. He never died physically. You remember how he got out of here? He went up in a whirlwind. Chariots of fire came, the Old Testament records. And Elijah went up into heaven. No mention that he died a physical death. However, Moses did die. There was another man who did not die. His name was Enoch. He was a prophet. And his prophecy, you'll find, was a prophecy of judgment, of fiery indignation, of wrath, that God was going to send upon this earth. Now then, I don't want to spend so much time on who they are because the thing of great importance is not who they are, but what they are and what they do. So here we look at what they are doing. Notice one other description in verse 4 of these men. They're described as the olive trees that stand before God and the candlesticks. Now those two things are significant, I believe. Olive trees, trees in general in the scripture, speak of righteousness. The olive tree was the tree from which the fruit of that tree came olive oil. You'll find that the oil of the olive in the scripture is symbolic of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. You'll find also in the further description of these men that they were the candlesticks who stood before the Lord God. That is, they're the golden lampstands. That is, light bearers. So what we have before us, in other words, is simply this. Here are two men, saved preachers. Let me tell you this, not all preachers are saved preachers. Not all men of the cloth have been born again. Keep that in your mind. And yet again, here are two saved preachers, and I say that as opposed to the false prophets, proclaiming the truth of God, the righteousness of God, in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now you've got a comparison to what these two men do. Are you listening? You've got a comparison back in the book of Zechariah chapter 4. And you'll find the same symbolism used in Zechariah 4 at verse 1 through 6. And finally at verse number 6, you'll remember this very familiar statement of verse 6. And the Lord said, Zechariah, it is not by might nor by power, but by my spirit saith the Lord. These two witnesses are God's righteous servants proclaiming the truth of God in the power of the Holy Spirit of God. That's the kind of preachers we need. Amen. Not only then to ask you to notice the prophets and the prophesying, but look at verse 5. You'll see their protection. Their protection. And if any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth and devoureth their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. In other words, God's saying, I'm going to put a shield and protection around my servant. Nothing the Antichrist can do until the appointed time. Nothing the devil can do. Nothing men can do can destroy these two worrisome, aggravating, irritating prophets who will stand in the midst of the city of Jerusalem denying the rule of Antichrist, telling the world what he is, and proclaiming the message of Jesus Christ as the only Savior of sinners. The Antichrist and his crowd will be infuriated. Constant irritation these two men are. Just like Elijah was to old Ahab. Just like Enoch and Moses were to those wicked in their day. So they as yet will be protected by the Lord. I'm reminded of that event in 2 Kings chapter 1. You remember when Azariah sent up word. He needed a word fell through the lattice. Whatever that means, I guess he fell through the roof and he got hurt. He was about to die and he needed a word from a prophet. And instead of sending word over to the man of God, he sent over the prophets of Baal, a bunch of idol worshipers, false prophets. And uh, God sent uh, uh, his servant over and said, uh, uh, Elijah, you s- go over there and tell him, is there not a God in Israel you can come to? Is there not a man of God? Instead, are you going to the prophets? And so the man of God went up and sat on the hill. And the king sent them to him, a captain of 50 men. And when they came and inquired, the prophet of God said, If I am a prophet of God, let fire consume you and your 50. You talked about a flamethrower. God simply destroyed them. He sent another 50 and yet the third group of 50 with their captain came and that man recognized these, this man, the prophet of God, as a man of God and he said, have mercy on me. I know what's happened to the others. You are indeed the man of God. I bow before you. He was spared and God told him to come down, go over and tell Azariah that he's not going to get well. He's going to die. Fell through the lattice, he's going to die. He'll never get up. And so it was. So these men are protected for when those come against them to hurt them. The Bible says they are destroyed by fire that proceeds out of their mouth. I believe simply that is a reference to the very authoritative, powerful Word of God. As they speak the Word, God devours their enemies and those that would hurt them by fire. Then look, if you will, at verse number 6. Their power reminds you, as I've already said, the power of these men to shut up heaven, verse 6, that there be no rain and have power over the waters to turn them to blood and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. Now, it's a brief look at the the witnesses. But I want you to look now, if you will, at verse 7 through 10 and see the martyrdom of these two men. What a pity verse 7 reveals. And when they shall have finished their testimony. I want you to underscore that. A man of God is immortal till God gets through with him. These men have everything in the world thrown at them. Attempts to destroy them. But none can destroy them until, notice, their ministry is fulfilled. Listen, I have no worry even about my life as a servant of God as long as I'm in the will of God. Listen, I'm not getting out of this country and going home to be with God till I'm through. And as far as that goes, you're not either if you're a child of God. I believe the Lord, if you are following him and surrender his will, God puts a protective shield about you. And I believe with my heart when my ministry is finished, as these prophets were, God's going to say it's time for you. And I believe I'll be as vulnerable as any man. And these men will be too. So yet, watch, they were killed. When the time of their ministry was fulfilled, the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit, a reference to the one world ruler empowered by Satan. Ladies and gentlemen, listen to me. For decades, you have been hearing the cry for a one world. It is taught in all of our history books. It is taught in all of the philosophies. It is taught in government circles. Today, there's the push for a one world under uh, something uh, uh, like the United Nations. There is the push for a one world court. There is the push for a one world military force. There is a push for and preparation for a one world currency. Do you think those things happen by accident? Man, you need to wake up. God's been talking about it for centuries and revealed to us that there one day is coming a a one man who will offer the remedy for the problems of this world. And buddy, have we ever got them? And if a man could come on the scene and prove to people he could bring peace in this world. Can you imagine what had happened? If a man had such a plan that he could provide peace in the Middle East. Do you, know what, do you know what the governments of this world do? They'd say, buddy, have at it. You are our man. That's the flashpoint of the world. The, the powder keg of the world. And I'm going to tell you, just as God said in an amazing just as God said one day the fellow's going to come on the scene and he's going to have the panacea. He's going to say here's the answer and he's going to make an agreement with Israel to the point that even the Arab nations are going to be content with what he promises them. Israel restored with their temple, their worship, their sacred shrine and the Arab world at peace for a three and a half year period. We saw when the first seal was opened that rider on the white horse. He came and he had a bowl. But he had no error. He comes offering peace. Paul said when the nations and the worlds begin to cry peace, peace, peace. Then sudden destruction. Our world cries for peace. But listen to me. There will never be any peace on this earth until the prince of peace comes again. Just as there will never be any peace in your heart until the Prince of Peace comes and takes up his reign in your heart. So here, what a pity these men are killed. Look at verse 8. You see a perversion here of the city of Jerusalem. And their dead bodies, can you imagine this, in a civilized world? Imagine this. And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city. What city is that? It is spiritually, and this is God's estimate of it. It is spiritually called Sodom. Materialism, immorality. And Egypt, symbol of worldliness. Where also our Lord was crucified. Is there any mistake as to what city this is? It is Jerusalem, the city of the temple, the city now where our Lord was crucified. But notice the Lord says in a, in a, in a uh, uh, descriptive way, you're like Sodom, immorality, perversion, wickedness, sin prevails, you're worldly. And our, listen, our world is more and more becoming just that. Immorality, sexual perversion, sexual immorality, increasing idolatry, men and women falling out after the false gods of of Hinduism uh, through the the teaching of the New Age movement, humanism and all the rest. And yet when these men are killed by the Antichrist, I believe the world's going to look at the Antichrist and say, buddy, you are our friend. You have rid this world of two of the most irritant forces on the face of this earth. We're glad they're dead. They'll leave them laying out in the street and there for some three days they'll be lying or, or for, for, shall be lying lie in the street of the city for some three days. Can you imagine that? And notice verse number nine. I've got a, a, a verse number nine. I call this the peering. The peering, P-E-R, peering. And they of the people and kindreds and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies three days and a half and shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put in grave. As far as recently as 1935, there were Bible teachers and scoffers who said, we cannot believe the Bible if for no other reason that little verse right there. In 1935, they said, how in the world can all the nations and the kindreds, the people of the world, how can they see two dead bodies lying in the street of the city of Jerusalem for three and a half days? They didn't know about Telstar in 1935. They didn't know about television. But men and women will sit glued to their television sets. And they will peer upon the decaying dead bodies. Of two prophets who stood announcing righteousness, the truth of God and denouncing the rule of the Antichrist for what he was. But look at verse 10. Civilized world you say? Look at verse 10. And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them and make merry and shall send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented them that dwelt on the earth kind of a satanic Christmas. Man, the party is all. We're rid of this bunch that's talking about God, talking about Jesus Christ, talking about the gospel, talking about the need of the shed blood of the Lamb. We're rid finally and forever with these fellas. And they have a party. But it's the shindigger's last shenanigan, whether they know it or not. It's the last party. For now, you'll find the miracle of the two witnesses. Look at verse 11 and 12, and I'll be through in two minutes. If you don't look at your watch. If you do, 15 more. Hang in there. Watch the final verses. Verse 11 and 12 says, And after three days and a half. Can you imagine now? What? Put yourself in this, in this, in this uh, scene. And after three days and a half. The spirit of life from God entered into them. And they stood up on their feet. (laughs) Can you imagine that? A fellow standing over and looked at them old decaying dead bodies, them prophets, boy, he's laughing, cheering. I'm glad we rid of that fundamentalist. And directly he sees an arm jerk. And he says, His friends, you see that? It's maybe just no worm or something eating on him. Look, I saw his other arm. Hey, what's he pulling his leg up? Look at there. I must be drunk. I'm high on dope. I'm high on pot or something. And people get around and say, oh, can you imagine the terror? The fear? Can you imagine some of you, uh, uh, <laughs> excuse me, can you imagine some of you peanut brain people that watch television all the time? Can you imagine sitting there watching your TV set and all of a sudden you see them Fellas begin to move around. Fellas been dead for three and a half days. And now they start standing up. Maybe somebody says that's a trick. That's one of them TV tricks. And then the newscaster comes on with a flash and says, we have startling news. The two men who have lain dead in the streets of Jerusalem for three and a half, day, three and a half days are standing upright on their feet. They're alive. And watch what happens. Not only the life, but look at the lift. The Bible said, and they ascended up. They heard a voice say, come up here. Now I like to call that the exclusive second rapture for the two prophets. The church is not even here, not even mentioned. Church had been gone for three and a half years. But here are these two witnesses of God and all of us. Can you imagine how the world will react to that? The cameras follow these fellows up and men all over the world may have heard faintly about the ascension of Jesus from the Mount of Olives. They're reminded of it. And the Bible says in verse 13 and 14, notice the great trembling that came as a result. And the Bible reveals that there came a great earthquake. 7,000 people were destroyed in Jerusalem. The city falls. Pandemonium prevails. But watch this. The men as well as the world trembled. I want you to read one verse and I've got to close out. And the same hour was there a great earthquake and the tenth part of the city fell. And in the earthquake were slain of men seven thousand. Watch this now. And the raiment were affrighted And gave glory to the God of heaven. Oh, you say, isn't that great? But people repented. Is that what it said? Didn't say that, did it? But people got right with God. No, it didn't say that. It just said they were afraid. And they became conscious of God. God's witnesses indeed have reminded these that God is still on the throne. He is in control. But watch this. Though they glorified God, there is not one inkling of indication that anybody repented and turned to God. You say, how could that happen? In Acts 24, verse 25, you remember Felix, the governor? And Paul stood before him, and Paul preached of righteousness and of judgment. And his response, the Bible said, was this. And Felix trembled. And he said to Paul, when I have a more convenient season, I'll call for you. A man may tremble at the display of the power of God. He may be affrighted and reminded of God and say, God did that. God did the raising of those men from the streets, been there for three and a half days. God caused them to ascend into heaven. Man had nothing to do with it. And they're glorifying God, but no repentance. Watch again. In Luke 5, verse 26, Jesus had performed a marvelous miracle. A palsied man was healed. The Pharisees, the religious hypocrites of the day, had witnessed it, but watch this. And they, verse 26 of Luke 5, and they were all amazed, and they glorified God, and were filled with fear, saying, we have seen strange things this day, but no repentance. They crucified Jesus. They rejected Jesus. They tramped upon him. They glorified God. They recognized him. No one could have done what has been done as Paul said, man, but God. God. They glorified him in that sense, the, and they were filled with fear. And they said, man, we have seen strange things. Can't you imagine if you'd been there looking at those two dead men, right? You'd probably been afraid too. And you would have probably said, God did that. And you would have probably said, my eyes have seen strange things. Today. Now listen to me. You have seen some strange things in your lifetime. But isn't it amazing how often God displays his power to men and women, and yet they think of God from it? Let a tragedy happen in our community. Tornado. Let a hurricane like Hugo come through in the coast of Carolina. Let some terrible, terrible tragedy occur, like a flood at Tacoma Falls. And you know what the average person in all of our counties do? They think of God. But how soon men forget God. And he has touched your life, many of you in this audience. He has dealt with you, and yet you've thought of him on those moments. But you've forgotten him. Listen, the only thing that will satisfy God is true repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing else. You can be amazed all your life at what God's able to do and die and go to hell. The thing that a man needs to do is to realize what the Bible says about him. He's a sinner, can't save himself. God's son died for him and pleads an entrance in his heart and he can be saved if he'll trust Jesus Christ as his personal Savior. Folks, no fairy tale, no comic book, God's book. And right now if you've got eyes to see it, things are shaping up in your very day and age. That soon these things are going to come like a deluge and a flood on this earth. We're nearing the time of the coming again of our Lord Jesus Christ. If He should come, are you ready? Have you trusted Him? Have you believed on Him as your Savior? If not, do it today. Let's stand to our